First, we, we started off utilizing sports, music, entertainment, and fashion to show kids or teach kids entrepreneurship and career development and show, you know, our youth other alternatives to being like the jock on the field or the court. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our fifth episode. Today, we join Charity Kuit, Senior Special Events Coordinator, as she introduces us to Fred McKinney, Quinnipiac's Carlton Highsmith Chair of Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and Jason Teal, Social Entrepreneur and Founder of Change the Play and Bomb Wings and Rice Bar, located right here in Hamden. Let's join in the conversation as they discuss social entrepreneurship and supporting at-risk youth. This is the Virtual Quadcast a podcast by the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio in partnership with the University Events and Community Partnerships team. I'm Carla Natale. We are so happy to have you with us. Thank you for listening. Glad to be here, and I'm very happy to have Jason as a guest today. Uh, And we're going to talk about his uh, businesses and his work in the community. So, uh, Jason Teal, as you mentioned, is the founder and owner of uh, Change the Play and Bomb Rice and Wings Bar. So uh, we know where to go to get the bomb rice and wings. Okay, so I've got some I've got some specific questions for Jason about the menu, uh, uh, and and we'll try to take care of that a little bit later. But first, I'd just like uh, Jason to talk about. Uh, his business. Um, I'm curious, you got two businesses here, uh, Change the Play and Bomb Rice and Wings. I kind of understand, I think, what Bomb Rice and Wings Bar is all about. But could you describe both of the businesses for uh, our audience this afternoon? Sure. Um, We founded Change the Play in 2014. Um, And at the time, I was the youngest NAACP president in the country. And I was looking for a way to affect my community that I could not do through, through the lenses of the NAACP. So I started Change to Play. Um, Change to Play focuses on at-risk uh, urban kids in the community. And we, sh- we were, at first, we, we started off utilizing sports, music, entertainment, and fashion to show kids or teach kids entrepreneurship and career development and show, you know, our youth other alternatives to being like the jock on the field or the court. Um, because a lot of times, like in my community, kids get a football or basketball put in their hand, and they all think they're going to the NFL or NBA, which is the most unrealistic like job to try to get in those industries, right? Trying to be the rapper is the hardest job to get in the music industry, right? There's so many other jobs that you can get, and there's so many other businesses and entrepreneur avenues you could take down all these industries other than being that one person in the spotlight. So um, I started Change the Play in 2014, and we were doing um, – um, entrepreneurship programming. We're showing kids how to start businesses and we're actually starting, you know, um, we're, we're producing manufacturing clothing and um, we worked with our partner Evelyn's and we were, um, we were, we were taking the kids through manufacturing design, concept creation, and then we were putting the clothes in Evelyn's. Evelyn's has been a great partner with us over the years and Evelyn's has um, sold the clothes that the kids make and then they donate all the proceeds back to the nonprofit. So um, around 2017, I noticed that a lot of our kids were hungry. So I started um, a food program. A buddy of mine that I played football with at Hampton um, was running this amazing um, foundation called Cover 3 Foundation in Virginia. And I flew down to Virginia to see his operation. And, and he was feeding, you know, so many meals a day. And I was just asking him, how, how does he do it? And he kind of just opened up his operation. And I took his model and I brought it up to Connecticut. In the summer of 2017, I partnered with a local church in Meriden. And we started feeding kids um, out of the local church in Meriden. That... um. In 2017, the, the, the kitchen, um, the, the, the church at the time had a small commercial mm-hmm. kitchen, and we just outgrew that commercial kitchen that first year. We were feeding 200 kids a day free meals um, that first summer. So I was looking for a place, you know, just a commercial kitchen to keep the program running because that, that was too small at the time. And, um, you know, places were just charging me an exorbitant amount of money just to rent, like, like a kitchen space. Um, and, you know, when you rent those commercial kitchens, you only have <laughs> – four hours that you can, um, you're, you're, you're in for four hours and you're out. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't have any um, storage space, you don't have any office space or anything. And I was like, I'm not paying all this money just to rent a space. I'm like, I could start, I can open up another business for this. The amount of money I have to pay for rent. That's kind of where uh, Bob Wayne's Rice Bar came into play. So um, 
for the nonprofit, like I said, we do, um, we're, we're up to about a thousand kids a day during the summer in our after school programming. We do about two to 300 kids a day feeding kids. Um, and we do a lot of like eighth to ninth grade transitioning programming um, where we take at-risk eighth graders and we transition them into high school. You know, I was an athlete in high school. So a lot of my stuff is sports focused as well. So we do a lot of work with the athletic departments on um, educational stuff with them. Right now we're operating a nonprofit in Connecticut and Massachusetts. So in Massachusetts, we are in like the DYS correctional facilities or juvenile correctional facilities. And we uh, go into the actual uh, correctional facilities, either halfway house type setups or the secure facilities. And we teach the juveniles entrepreneurship. Uh, we have a program called like, how to start a business for less than a pair of Jordans for those kids. Um, and we teach, we go into the jails and teach them how to start businesses because, you know, a lot of these kids have felonies and it's going to be hard for them to get, get employment. So we just teach them entrepreneurial skills so they have some hope when they get out. Yeah. So, and then we also work in another community in Lawrence, Massachusetts, aside from DYS. Lawrence is like similar to like New Haven, probably like a little bit heavier Spanish New Haven. And we work with the Lawrence Police Department and we uh, take at-risk uh, youth and we just show them entrepreneurship as well and career development. Well, that's a fantastic story. I mean, I, I've done some work in this in uh, this space. I do some work with an organization up in Brockton, Massachusetts that okay. with at-risk kids and teaches them, the name of the other organization is called Empower Yourself. And it's trying to, it's teaching kids entrepreneurial and finance skills. So I have a sense of one, how important this work is, but also how difficult it is. So I'm curious, you got two, the, the, the two are related, that you've got a, a target population, you saw some needs that that target population has. In addition to the training, the entrepreneurial training, uh, people don't, uh, they don't learn well when they're hungry. So you're feeding them. And talk a little bit about where you're located. So where can people physically find you? The nonprofit or the restaurant? The both. Well the, well, the restaurant is located on Whitney Ave in Hamden. It's on the corner of Whitney and Dixwell. Um, it's 2373 Whitney, if you're familiar with the area. We're right across yeah. from Eli's and the um, police and fire station, right there on the corner of Whitney and Dixwell. And then the nonprofit, we operate um, pretty much in the school systems. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now we're running programming. Uh, we, ha we have a lot of program going on with Meriden Public Schools. So we uh, do programming in, you know, both of their high schools and both of their middle schools. So Lincoln Middle School, Washington Middle School, Platt and Maloney High School. We've done some programming in Hill House in the past. Shout out to Hill House. That's like my second high school. I love, I love that school. And then, um, as I mentioned, in Massachusetts, we're in a bunch of various DYS correctional facilities, juvenile correctional facilities in Mass. And then Lawrence, Massachusetts, we work with Lawrence High School, uh, the Boys Club. Um, the YMCA. So we work with a bunch of different like organizations in Lawrence, Massachusetts as well. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your, uh, your, your past food experience. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs and you're teaching entrepreneurship to an at-risk population uh, and you saw a need, but did you have any experience in the food business before you, you launched that venture? I actually didn't. I had zero experience other than eating at restaurants. <laughs> I've never worked in a restaurant. I've never worked on a line. I've never even took, taken an order. I never even really had a job where I've actually like framed somebody up. Um, so no, I haven't. I'm like the hood chef and neighborhood chef. So like, at, at, like our family, I, I do all the cooking for our family. So like when we have a party, they, you know, I'm usually like on the grill or usually like doing a lot of the cooking when we have family parties. So I, you know, I, I do have some sort of like, uh, I know some sort of, I do have some sort of food palette, but uh, professionally, like I can cook in the, in, you know, in the, in the kitchen, like in a house kitchen, but put me behind that line, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a real skill. I mean, it's a, it's a real skill to cook. And I think a lot of us are learning that during this period of, uh, of shelter in place, when it's not as easy to go to your, your favorite neighborhood restaurant, sit down and get a meal. Uh, sure. People are cooking, uh, I think, more and more. Do you have a takeout opportunity with your... Um, uh, bomb rice and wings bar. I mean, because how is the how has the pandemic impacted that part of your your business? Actually, the pandemic has been great for us. Okay, um, honestly, because we were a brand new restaurant, and you know, your first year we, we opened last year, so the first year of any business is difficult, especially with a restaurant. And a lot of most of restaurants tank their first year. And one of the hardest things is you know we already have great food, and I'm very confident in our food, and I'm very confident in the concept that we built. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to get the marketing and the advertisement out there. Um, so now what happened with the pandemic, a lot of restaurants had to shut down and there wasn't so many of the big dogs on the block. So now we were operating in a smaller space and people were forced to find, seek out and find new restaurants. So we've got a lot of people that were just looking for new restaurants and, and stumbled upon us. And then, you know, the whole first year, I didn't even do any advertisement because I was really concerned about the quality in the kitchen. And so I didn't want to advertise and pull a whole bunch of people in if we didn't have our stuff tight in the kitchen and, and have our stuff tight customer service wise. So we did zero advertisement the whole first year. And then it was just mm -hmm. all off of word of mouth. So we were still, you know, we didn't, I don't even think we penetrated the Quinnipiac market like we should have. And that's right down the street from us. There's so many other like um, little silos of markets that we didn't even like really attack and penetrate that we still have the opportunity to grow right now. And um, it's just awful word of mouth. We just opened the door and people came in and people tasted the food. They loved the concept. It was something refreshing. And they told their friends and they came back. Now with the pandemic, it just, people, it just was like, a, like, a, like, it just pumped some like, you know, adrenaline into the marketing that we, you know, and then people just started coming in. So um, in that respect, COVID is, you know, it's been, it's been okay with us because, you know, my partner and I, Ray, we said that, you know, if we we're going to open this restaurant, we figured that, you know, we kind of saw this coming. We didn't honestly see COVID coming, but we saw something like this coming. And we said that, you know, for restaurants to operate moving forward, you're going to have to include Uber Eats, Grubhub, and these third-party delivery apps because that's going to be the future. We saw that as the future already. So, right. and, but, and me not having any restaurant experience, I respect that. I respect this industry so much. I didn't dare to say I'm going to just open up a, a 5,000 square foot restaurant seat in and then think we're going to be successful. So I wanted to go as small as possible. So we just did, we just opened up takeout and delivery, a small takeout delivery. And we, and we centered the business around um, Grubhub, Uber Eats, and all these, all these third-party apps. Mm -hmm. And um, we built the business model around that. So mm -hmm. then when this pandemic came, we were like right in the space. We were ahead of the space, actually. And we were like right there to catch the wave. And it's funny, um, last year when we were opening, in February last year, I had um, one of our our food reps came in and, it, and it's a large food rep called it's us us foods it's a very large food rep and we were like interviewing food reps to, to see who we were going to like start doing business with and we were telling that her our model and she was like you know what this is amazing she said you guys are actually you know ahead of the trend she said i just got out of a sales meeting last week and you know these big these big companies they have like research firms that do all research on the industry and tell them you know the, the ebbs and flows in the future they do forecasting for the industry and she said actually they said that she said 70% of sit-down restaurant dining is going to be gone by 2020. Mm -hmm. And when she said that, I was like 70%. I thought she misspoke, honestly. And I'm mm -hmm. like, you know, she's quoting something wrong. I'm like, she's like, there's something off with that. Either she's, she, either the number is wrong or the year is wrong because this was last year. And I'm like, 2022, that's like, that's, that's like, to me, that's like tomorrow. <laughs> so I was like, there's no way that could be right. And then it's crazy because she was absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a changing marketplace. And one of the things that I have been writing about is how the COVID experience is going to change a number of industries, not just during this period, but perhaps uh, permanently. And I, I think you're right. People are getting used to ordering online and a lot of, a lot of customers are more comfortable eating at home anyway. So yeah. they don't have a problem ordering and pick, or having it delivered. They don't even have to get in their car anymore. This is delivered to them. So right. uh, in that respect, I think uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective, you're ahead of the, you are ahead of the curve. Now, I want to ask you about your, 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 uh, your experiences in terms of who or what were your inspirations? I mean, not everybody gets into entrepreneurship or in particular social entrepreneurship. Um, and I teach a class at Quinnipiac on social entrepreneurship, and I talk about uh, fire in the belly um, that motivates most social entrepreneurs, and that fire comes from something. So could you talk about what was the, uh, where did your fire in your belly come from? So can you talk about that? Yeah, I don't know if it um, is a one particular person I could point to, but it's probably a, a bunch of amalgamation of a bunch of different like things. Um, one is just being black in America. You see how brilliant we are as a people and you see, you know, how influential we are in the, in the world dichotomy and you see how influential we are in, in the United States. Um, you see how many trends we set, you see, you know, you know, how much, you know, our collective dollar contributes to the economy, but the state where we're at is 
considering you know how skillful we are is is, is really is terrifying and, and really upsetting so it starts by just being you know black in america i would say the next part would be coming from meriden which you know meriden is kind of like you know we're, we're a blue collar poor community and then i would say the first light bulb into like this whole like social entrepreneurship before i even was thinking about going out on my own and starting a business i used to work for clear channel which is now mm-hmm. iHeartMedia. I was an account executive over there. And um, I started in Boston. I helped launch a station out there. And then I moved to Boston. And then when I was in Boston um, at the radio station, they did like one of these sales trains that we had. And it was around um, social entrepreneurship. And it was around um, social marketing. Mm-hmm. So companies like, like say American Express, they, um, and, you know, when the, when the Statue of Liberty was being restored, they said to people, all right, we're going to don't, we're going to donate one cent for every time you use American Express. And we're going to donate two cents for every member that, that joins. Well, their membership skyrocketed and their sales skyrocketed that year. And it gives people that warm, fuzzy feeling about your brand. So that's when I first came onto the concept of, of, you know, of, of social marketing and, and all this stuff. Then it was just kind of like, I left Clear Channel to go on my own. I started a small boutique ad agency in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So um, through our ad agency, we, we, you know, we started doing social marketing stuff. We started doing, you know, SEO. And, you know, that was at the very beginning of, of, of heavy internet marketing. And then President Esdale called me, President Scott Esdale, he's the state conference president of the NAACP for Connecticut, and he's a national board member. He called me down to help him run the Connecticut office. So then that's when I really started, like, getting into the nonprofit world. I, from up until that point, I was just all corporate stuff. So then um, I started getting into the nonprofit world when I ran a state conference at NAACP. So then I started seeing all these different needs and these different angles. And I, I, I noticed how um, the business stuff and the, and the corporate stuff I was doing really could blend in and help the nonprofit world as well. So also you mentioned earlier that you are a Hamptonian. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I've got a lot of uh, family connections to Hampton as well. My, I've got two brother-in-laws that are Hamptonians. I've got a niece. I've got uh, multiple cousins. So um, talk about the, the influence that Hampton had on your entrepreneurial development. What was your major at Hampton? It was actually, um, it was mass media. Okay. Um, Hampton was the first time I took an entrepreneurship class. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I didn't really, like, even knew what the word meant, like, really. I just kind of, like, I kind of had a, a little bit of an idea, but I took my first entrepreneurship class at Hampton, so I guess that, that planted the seeds for mm-hmm. me. Um, I just knew I didn't really, like, you know, because I'm kind of, like, a contrarian, so I don't like rules, and I go against the grain a lot. So I didn't really want to, I knew I didn't want to work for anybody. <laughs> but that's pretty much all I do, right? <laughs> yep, so, that's... yeah, my first entrepreneurship class was at Hampton. Okay. So um, when you started the, um, you, you started Bomb Rice and Wings, what, what was your goal? I mean, what, what, is, what do you see as the, the, the end state for this activity? Do you see multiple stores around the, the region? Uh, do you see franchise potential? Um, do you see a, a larger operation? Um, you know, I, I was traveling not too long ago when we, when in people were traveling, I was, I had a trip down to Nashville, uh, Tennessee, and I've got some buddies down there, uh, that are related that in, that are at Fisk. And, uh, one of the things they wanted to show me when I got there first out was, had I ever had any wings, any Nashville wings? Are you okay. familiar, feel you familiar with sort of Nashville style chicken wings? Uh, because I mean, they they are so proud of that, and they've got people flying in all over the country for those for the original Nashville wings, and they got lines of people out the door, and so they got all kinds of people throwing money at them trying to franchise uh, these this 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 particular type of wings. Were you aware of that and uh, the potential for for this? No, I'm not aware of Nashville wings, but now that you said it, I'm definitely going to Google it and get the recipe and put it on our menu. You're not going to get the recipe. <laughs> Thank you for that. It will be on the menu in a couple of weeks, so stay well, tuned. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna have you're gonna have to go down there, stand in line, yeah, fly down there, if, and find out what's in it because uh, they. I mean, in fact, there was an article in the New York Times about Nashville wings, so you can Google it. I'm definitely going to find that out. 
But yeah, yeah. We, saw, we definitely saw the possibility to, um, I mean, we built this to be a franchisable uh, location. So like, um, like my partner and I would have never just opened up this restaurant just to have a one-off like small restaurant. That's not, that's not our style. Um, mm -hmm. So like we only, we built this to be franchisable. And the purpose of the restaurant is really to support the nonprofit. Okay. So a portion of the proceeds go back into the nonprofit and a portion of the proceeds go back into particularly the food program. I built it because we needed a space out of need. I built it out of a need so the food program could grow. And right. with these nonprofit programmings, everything is always around like sustainability. How are you going to sustain it? So, you know, just having, a, if you have a functioning restaurant, the resources that you can pull from the restaurant to help the food program, as well as we're donating a portion of the profits from the restaurant into the food program so to create sustainability for the food program so we built this so the food program would grow we really the restaurant to, so the restaurant could feed more kids help feed more kids and um yeah so yeah so definitely you know franchising it was built around that and um we, and then every franchise would then pour into the nonprofit and pour it back into the food program well you know this concept of social entrepreneurship is is still relatively new uh, it's been around probably about 25, 30 years max. And the, or, the original uh, sort of concept of social entrepreneur actually started uh, in, in Southeast Asia um, uh, with a guy by the name of Muhammad Yunus. And he was an economist who was looking at uh, his community. He was, you know, an economist working at a university and uh, surrounding that university was just massive abject poverty. And it, it inspired him uh, to say, okay, well, what can we do about it uh, other than uh, just providing a charitable contribution to the people who were experiencing this abject poverty? And so he came up with a concept. He was actually noticed that there were a lot of, of poor women who were selling uh, clothes uh, in the community. And, uh, you know, they were just barely subsisting on their um, micro enterprises. And so he just asked them the question, you know, well, what, why are, why can't you grow? Why, what's holding your business back? And it turns out <laughs> that many of these women were in debt um, to the local supplier of the clothes that they were making. But their debts were pretty small. I mean, you were talking about, you know, $25, $30 at that time was mm -hmm. enough to keep those, those women entrepreneurs in a, in a state of perpetual uh, debt. And so he, you know, he asked the question, well, why can't you go borrow money? And, and they kind of laughed. They said, well, you know, the banks don't want us. Oh. <laughs> and so what he did was he said, okay, well, let's create a bank. And he created what is called the Grameen Bank. And that bank now is a multi-billion dollar institution that's, whose mission is to support the financial needs of entrepreneurs, micro-entrepreneurs around the world. And so, you know, that, that success story led to him winning a Nobel Prize. Now, one of the things that he talks about in his work in social entrepreneurship and it might be something for you to think about is, uh, you know, you've got a, a for-profit, more or less for-profit food business that's supporting the nonprofit. One piece that I, I think would be interesting is if you could engage those benefits, those beneficiaries in the nonprofit in the for-profit business. So in other words, can those kids that you are feeding and supporting also get into the food business in some way well yeah we, we do do that actually right now um, okay so talk about that we worked we had a couple different programs that we ran during the school year we had a program where we took um kids uh that were high like high functioning um uh, mentally handicapped youth and we had them make we had that we showed them skills of how to food uh, how to prepare the food for the food program so you know a lot of those kids you know when they when they finish high school there's not a lot of like like options for them other than being like a custodian and you know there's a couple of different things but like you know they could definitely like work at a place like subway so we have a program with that and then when we moved into the restaurant um all of last year we, we formed a partnership with whitneyville which is uh down the street yeah. um, on whitney ave um from our restaurant and they take like um 
like juveniles who like who are like like if, if you get suspended or I'm sorry if you get expelled from school you go there for school or like the the courts will send you there as like a diversion before you go to like juvenile you know like a juvenile detention center okay. so they had a small like culinary program at Whitneyville and we take kids from Whitneyville and we bring them in once a week into the restaurant and we show them how to work in a real restaurant so they we show them prep skills and we teach them how to like and they help us open up like once a week um like once a week in the morning time okay well, you know i sit on the board of a company of, an, of a nonprofit organization in new haven called the connecticut center for arts and technology and they have a commercial kitchen where they teach culinary skills i would you know think i can i want to hook you guys up with uh with concat as it's called oh yeah that's my man eric clemens eric clemens absolutely yeah. So, the most dapper guy in the around. <laughs> yeah, there you go. With his, yeah, he's he is dapper. So yeah, Eric and I, I'm on his board, and okay. they do they do great work. And it would seem like there could be some potential opportunities for both organizations, your organization and his, uh, to do even more work in the community in in terms of either training chefs for the for the local market, or uh, training entrepreneurs. Uh, to to get into the food business, um, and you know there there are a lot of success stories. You hear about small uh, food companies that may even operate out of their truck, who eventually grow on to grow to become uh, pretty substantial businesses. Now, when you say when you say Eric Clemens and you say you know influences, Eric Clemens was definitely an influence in me because um, that Concat program is amazing. How you, you know he just goes and he just says, all right, well, what are the most needed jobs for bottom? So he right. went to the hospital said, what are the most needed positions for my uh, medical coding? So right. he so he just takes people pretty much off the street, if I'm correct. And if, if your correct. reading isn't correct, if your math isn't correct, you get your math and your reading correct. And then they take you in stages and teach you the phlebotomy, teach you um, medical coding. And then he introduced the culinary thing as well. And he went and saw like, kind of a little bit what I'm doing. He went and saw like, where is the, where is the opportunity? Where can the people get actual jobs, right? right? And then let's teach the people to the job. Correct. I, what he's doing is amazing. Well, there's, a, I'm going to tie the circle here, uh, complete the circle. Carl Highsmith, who is a trustee at Quinnipiac University, is essentially the founder of CONCAT. And um, CONCAT is based on a model um, out of Pittsburgh. And the, uh, it's a organization in Pittsburgh that was created uh, by a guy by the name of Bill Strickland, who won a MacArthur Fellowship Genius Award for doing essentially what CONCAT does in Pittsburgh. But they started in Pittsburgh. Carl Highsmith was invited to Pittsburgh to see that model. He was so inspired that he says, we got to do this in New Haven. And that's how CONCAT got started. And he was looking around for an executive to run CONCAT and a lot of the, everybody was pointing to Eric Clemens. And so Eric is the executive director of the organization. So yeah, I was glad, I'm glad to know that you know them. And, and, and if I can be of help to sort of facilitate some uh, more, even more collaboration, I'd be happy to do that. For sure. Uh, now, Highsmith, he, uh, he found a specialized packaging, right? That's correct. I, I would that's love to meet him as well, because he's an amazing person. And he's one of the people that, like, like influence you from afar. Like I've never met him. I don't know him, but like someone that could spot that could start specialized packaging how we did and then sell it for that much money. That's someone that I need to like, <laughs> I need to talk to. I figure can, out, like, how did you do this? And like, like, like you're the I man, can, like how do I be like you? <laughs> I, can make, I can make that happen. So we'll, 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 we'll arrange that. In fact, I was, I was talking to Carl earlier today. So he and I talk often. Okay. Um, Jason. I actually have a question related to what Fred is saying about, you know, Carl Highsmith being, you know, involved in that organization, you know, Carlton Highsmith, one of our trustees, like, what can Quinnipiac do to help get involved in Change the Play? I mean, I would say that uh, I'm always looking for like, I, I mean, it's hard to say now because it's a brave new world right now. But if we're just going off of the model that I, because that's all I can do, well, I mean, everything's going to change once you know, people figure out the rules of, of COVID and how we're going to operate and conduct business after this. But going off through our past model, I'm always looking for like interns and volunteers to kind of help with like with tutoring our kids. Um, Cause we have, uh, and I think, I believe you guys have a teacher college, right? So like definitely helping with tutoring the kids, any kind of like raising awareness to kind of fundraise 
for the programs that we're doing and the food, because we do get a, a, a reimbursement from the, the federal government that flows down to the state, but that only covers about, you know, three quarters of our costs. We have to raise the money for the other, you know, other quarter of the cost roughly. So anything helping with fundraising. And I would just say, hey, we're right down the street, just come eat at the restaurant. Every time you eat at the restaurant, the profit from what we make is going back into the food program. So those are three, you know, ways that this Quinnipiac students and faculty can definitely help out in, in further our mission. Can you talk more about, too, how the restaurant and the nonprofit are coexisting in the same space? How does that work? So in the mornings and sometimes late, late at night, the, my, my team from the, um, my food um, team from the nonprofit um, comes in and uh, prepares the meals. It's head by uh, our kitchen supervisor's name is Eric Little. He's the man. He comes in and he handles all the ordering. He makes sure all the food is pumped out. Um, and then he, uh, he makes the food in the off hours in the restaurant. And then, you know, my staff usually comes well, right now since COVID, we open at 12. So my staff comes in around 11 for the restaurant. So then he makes sure that everything is done before the restaurant opens. And then when the restaurant opens, then um, that's usually around the time when we're, we're sending the meals out to different locations. And then sometimes when the restaurant closes, we'll come in at night and prepare stuff. So it just balances in the off hours. So there's something going on all the time down there. We also have a question. Uh, what advice would you give to any young entrepreneur that's listening or anybody that knows a young entrepreneur? You have to, you have to know how to take no and, and learn how to, um, and learn how to uh, get around um, defeat. You have to be a great problem solver. If you don't love to solve problems, I mean, my partner, we, I think we like, we embrace solving problems. We like, love it. Like it get like, like it gets like, when you have a problem, it gets like, it's a thrill for us to, uh, to, to figure out how to get around that problem. Um, right. You have to be able to accept change. If you can't mm -hmm. accept change, some people hate change. You can't operate in change. I embrace change. I love change. Like I'm kind of weird. Even like during this COVID thing, like I kind of like, you know, the change and how you have to adapt and I get a thrill out of like, figuring out different ways to do things now because everything has changed. I like that kind of environment. I would also say that you have to watch who your circle is. And this is something that I've come to realize even myself over the last, you know, recently, like very recently, I'm like, not, cause you don't have a lot of time. Right. So I'm Xing out, we're not Xing out. I'm, I'm diverting my time from people who don't have the same views and goals and aspirations as I do. And I'm diverting my time from people that don't want to see me succeed. Like, if you know where the opportunity is and you don't point me to the opportunity, then I can't, you can't be in my circle. Because I would do the same thing for you. We see, and, and the streets, you call it the bag. If you know where the bag is and you don't point me to the bag, then I can't, like, I can't deal with you. So, like, because that's how I am, too. If I, if, like, even if I met you a couple times and I see an opportunity that would be great for you, I'm going to call you and say, listen, this is what I found. I think it will work out great for you. So I think that that's very important in a relationship because I think that we should all want to see each other grow and prosper. We should all want to see each other's families um, grow and prosper. So yeah, that, those are my, my little gems. I don't know how much they're worth, but. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, that kind of leads into another great question we have. Um, Josh says, there are so many competing polls on youth attention and priorities, schools, mm -hmm. clubs, et cetera. The, at the local teen center that Josh works with, we see them do it all. Successful entrepreneurship requires so much focus, energy, commitment. What are some of your strategies for building that commitment in youth? We focus on the carrot, right? So like um, the music, the sports, all that stuff is just a carrot, right? The music is the fun stuff. Every kid loves music, kids love sports, they love all these things. So then you, 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 you teach them all you make it palatable when it's like giving them medicine. It's like putting like the medicine in applesauce for a kid, right? So you make it palatable for them and it around the show, like utilizing the sports and music, the entertainment, the fashion, cause that's, that's a glamorous stuff that they like. And then you give them the information through those means. So you show them like, like their favorite rappers or their favorite artists or their favorite sports figures who are doing other businesses. You show them how they, how they took their platform and utilize their platform to start all these other businesses. You have them create right now, big thing in marketing and the major thing in marketing is content creation. So you show them content and show them how to create content around their interest areas. So you gotta, you gotta hone in on their interest areas. And then that's how you, you know, penetrate the, you know, that, that thick outer layer of them. And then they, they're more acceptable to things. Also another major component is we're very relatable. Like we dress like them, we look like them. Like, you know, so like that already being taught by somebody that dress, looks and speaks like you, 
you know, and you see them in a successful light, even though I don't consider myself successful, but the youth might see me as that. So in my team as well, um, I, um, they, you know, they, they see those things. And then another thing is like, we're actual like entrepreneurs and people that are really doing it that are teaching them. So like one of my partners, DJ Lust, who started a nonprofit with me, he's a big time DJ in Boston. He's, he's on the Boston radio. He's been, he was one of the youngest DJs in the country on radio. He's the man. So like they can go up and go on Lust's Facebook page, go on Lust's Instagram page and see Lust in the club, see Lust DJing, see Lust on the radio. My other partner, Ray, you know, started a um, very successful entrepreneur, started a major clothing line. Um, they can see the actual stuff that we do. So it's not like a teacher coming in and saying, this is what you should be doing and teaching out of a book. These are entrepreneurs and people in the music space, people in the fashion space that are talking about it, but actually are doing it, you know, you know, doing it at a, at a, at a pretty decent level. It's no doubt that you are a successful role model to these kids and uh, you're, you're having quite an influence on them. Can you talk about some of your kids who, when you talk about, you think about your kids, who comes to mind first? Can you tell me a story about one of your kids? Yeah. I always use a story because it, it, it's um, Keyshawn, right? He had, I used to call him young, young Yepster. So, cause he has his clothing line called Yepster clothing. And this is when I was in Hill House and we were doing programming in Hill House. And we had our um, entrepreneurship through music and fashion program in Hill House. And the program was like, the kids loved it. And we were working with this, this group of kids called the Youth Stat Kids. I don't know if you're familiar with that terminology, but the Youth Stat Kids are like some of the most disengaged kids in youth in Hill House. And you know, Hill House is a school surrounded by the four poorest neighborhoods in New Haven. So um, this, these kids have been through a lot of rough stuff, as you can imagine. So um, a teacher comes to me, a math teacher comes to me actually. It was Yepster's math teacher and he goes, hey, you know, I think I had this kid that'd be good for your program. He never does any work in my class, but he's always just, you know, working on his clothing line. So I was like, all right, yeah, send him through. So I told him, I told Yepster, I said, um, I, I knew he wasn't doing any work in math. And I said, well, do you think you need math to be successful in, in fashion and in clothing? He said, no. So I just gave him like a very simple example of like how you need a basic algebra in fashion and, and to sell clothing and, and, the, and in business. It was a super basic algebra. And I said, listen, and he couldn't even do it. So I said, if you can't do this simple problem, how do you think someone like me is going to want to work with you? I was like, we have to do these things in our head all the, every day. And you can't even do the simple algebra problem. So I was like, you know what? If you start doing all your math work and you start doing your work, then we will use Yepster as a test model, as a test case in our program. And we will design some stuff around Yepster. We will put it in Evelyn's. And then when he said that, he started doing all his work. His teacher mm -hmm. came back to me and said, I don't know what you said to him, but he's coming, he's doing his work. He's, he's in there and Yepster ended up going to community college. So he mm -hmm. went from not doing any work in math at Hill House to going to community college. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great story. And I, I think that that shows the power of entrepreneurship in our community. And I, I'm a firm believer that we don't do enough entrepreneurship in our schools. Well, Fred, if you, if you, if you're, I mean, I know, I'm sure you know, but that was like the, that was the, the, that was the pinnacle of our community. Like, like we couldn't, when we couldn't buy from other communities, we had to start our own. That's correct. So, and that's where a little bit of like integration kind of hurt us because when integration happened, you know, it took all the doctors, the lawyers, all the entrepreneurship out of the hood because now they can go into better neighborhoods. So you, right. now you leave the neighborhood with all the professionals and, and are taken out of the neighborhood. And right. then even though our stuff wasn't second, it was viewed as secondary. So now I can go to the other store now, instead of going to my own community store. So now the money shifted from our businesses and our stuff to other stuff. And then you also have to other people's businesses. And then you also have, you know, all of the black, you know, everyone knows about Black Wall Street, right. but there's a bunch of Black Wall Streets before the main That's Black right. Wall Street everyone thinks about. So there's a bunch of communities with successful thriving millionaires, people that own movie theaters, bus stations, uh, everything, airports. So, right. they, they, so once integration happens, you have the combination of integration and then you have the burning down of our communities and that killed our entrepreneurship. So now the black dollar does not circulate in the black community past a millisecond. That's correct. No, that's correct. I'm glad you brought up Black Wall Street. For those on the call who don't know about Black Wall Street, I, I suggest you Google it because it's quite a story about the Greenwood neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, at the, in the early part of the 20th century 
and how thriving a community, economic community that was with um, black millionaires and folks who owned airplanes and as you said, movie theaters, restaurants, et cetera. And uh, that community unfortunately uh, was torched. And um, so it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a story of the potential of what still exists in our communities. So, For sure. Black Wall Street is so important because on many different levels, because not only, like I said, there was a bunch of Black Wall Streets, but there's, right. a, there's, a, there's a, a certain narrative about Black Americans that is not true. And mm -hmm. then, and when you look at a Black Wall Street, that just, it just goes against every narrative about Black people. And then you got to think about people that were, you know, were kings and queens and entrepreneurships in Africa were brought over, stripped of all their knowledge, and then made slaves and then came out of slavery to make these major successful communities, million dollar communities that were then bombed and, and, and torched and it had to start all over. So it's like, if, think about all these black Wall Streets that were around the country. If all these black Wall Streets were allowed to thrive and continue, and then you have, you know, you have the compounding interest of money, think about how much money would be in our community if all that money were to compound and black and those black Wall Streets were never burned down. Think about how much money would be in the black community to this day. That's absolutely true. So I'm going to switch a little bit in terms of focus. Talk to me. Did did you, with any of your enterprises, seek any support from the Paycheck Protection Program? That's been all of the conversation <laughs> over the last couple of weeks. And if you did, talk about that experience. If you didn't, why didn't you? We actually did. Um, we did end up getting PPP, and it was very frustrating because, in the like, it's, the whole thing has been a debacle, right? So, in the beginning, no one knew anything, just like no one knows anything now. So, in the beginning, when it first was announced, we had to go through our bank, and they said, you know, everybody has to go through your bank. So then we contacted our bank, and our bank was saying, no, you got to go through the SBA. We're not set up for this because the bank didn't have the infrastructure to even do anything. So the bank was like, no, we're not set up. You got to go to the SBA. Then you go to the SBA and the website link didn't even work. So you couldn't even apply. So then by the time we got back to the bank who started accepting them again, all the money was gone that first round. Mm -hmm. So then um, luckily they appropriated some more funding in the second round and we were able to get on that second round and, and successfully get some PPP on this, during the second round. So you're going to use that. I mean, you're, you're, um, the restaurant never did you you never shut down your restaurant is that correct we never shut down but we did shave labor drastically in the beginning because the first like okay. couple of weeks we were getting slaughtered um because you know the, this shock mm. and the fear of everything so everyone kind of like pulled back so the market reacted right, right to the news of covid um and then right. so then we had we had to cut labor drastically and then you know ppv has allowed us to to, to, to bring some more people back and to grow and, uh, you know, and, the, and to keep people's, uh, actually bring some more qualified people in, which is good because a lot of restaurants are shutting down. So I'm, I'm trying to look, anyone that has a good line kick, cook or knows how to use a wok, like, like definitely to talk to me because I'm looking for, you know, to bring on at least two more great cooks. So while restaurants are shutting down, we're able to leverage PPP to hire some people that are out of work right now to bring them, you know, into our restaurant and, and, and help us grow. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's an interesting time from a business perspective. I've, I've been writing on this subject as well. And um, have you, has your landlord been flexible um, during this period? I know a lot of restaurants in particular, and more, you know, all small businesses are affected by this, but I think restaurants in particular have been hard hit. Uh, or does not care. He wants his money. <laughs> yeah. He wants his money by the, by the 10th <laughs> every month. Yeah. He does not care about COVID, he does not care about anything that's going on. He's not even American. Right. So he don't care about, you know, he don't care about any of this stuff. So like, right. he don't, like, he, he wants his money. <laughs> right. No, and I, I've been advocating for uh, that small businesses should be, uh, be, that these types of costs should be suspended until the economy is back. Uh, because that's what's, that, you know, you got hundreds of thousands of small businesses that are going out of business right now. Sure. Uh, because they don't have the revenue to pay their rent. Uh, even Starbucks yesterday uh, put out a statement that said that they want concessions from all of their landlords across the country because they're, they, Starbucks, a Fortune 500 company, is having difficulty paying rent 
on those stores that they have, those thousands of stores that they have across the country because they're not making any money. So sure. it's, it's going to be, it's, it's tough on businesses. So. Well, well, to me, I mean, it starts with the banks, right? Like yeah. you got you to gotta put the banks in check because the banks have been making record profits year over year since the last recession. Yeah. So didn't they store some of that money away that they can allow, you know, people to go a couple months without paying their mortgage? And exactly. if, if I was a default on my loan, um, the bank would say, look at me, they would look at oh, my mortgage or default on anything. They would say, well, you should have prepared better. You should have saved money and you right. should have been more frugal and you should have, you know, saved and had enough money to pay this mortgage. So, yeah. like, did, did these banks save all this money when they was having year over year record profits every single year that now they can give the American people some sort of, like, a, a break while this pandemic is going on and just and just have people no, don't defer people's mortgage payments don't defer stuff because people can't make that balloon payment at the end of the deferment if you haven't been making any money all this all these months how are you going to make the money at the, at the deferment so the banks need to be put in check and people need to say listen you guys need to stop trying to hoard the american people and and just relax for a few months and allow people not to pay you so everyone can get right and then once everyone gets right then people can start paying you again exactly now there's some there's some scary similarities between what's going on in the small business community and banking and what happened in the 2008 2010 great recession with regards to homeowners and uh, I think we made matters a lot worse during the great recession by forcing homeowners out of business and walking away from their from their homes and what we don't want to see I think in this crisis is for banks and other fixed cost suppliers to force small businesses out of business because they can if they're not flexible. You know, you're in a very fortunate situation because of your entrepreneurship. But uh, I want to talk to I want to talk I want to talk menu before while we have a few minutes left. Okay. So tell me what's on the menu at uh, Bomb Rice and Wings. What do you get? What do you what's what's moving and what do people rave about? Um, it's a little, it's a few different items. I mean, just to kind of like, so, so how we started the menu, my partner and I were going back and forth and we're like, well, if we're going to do this restaurant, you know, it has to be a real business. So what is the most popular or successful food in America at the time? We were, and we decided it was Chinese food. We were like, mm -hmm. Chinese food does zero advertisement. They put right. zero back into the community. Try to get like a, uh, <laughs> try to get like a, a soccer club or a football club advertising sponsor for Chinese food restaurant. Yeah, right. Um, they, 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 and everyone gives them their money. Everyone goes to Chinese food restaurants all the time, right? right. So we're like, all right, if, if we think Chinese food is the most successful food in America, right? What is the most popular thing in a Chinese food restaurant? We're like fried rice, right? Mm. So we're like fried rice. So we're like, yo, let's make a fried rice bar where people can choose their rice. So you could choose cauliflower rice, brown rice, um, jasmine rice, or a Zhang Zhang rice, which is a Haitian, it's a mushroom based Haitian rice. Mm -hmm. So you could choose your rice, you could choose your vegetable and fruit, you could choose your protein and topping and we'll fry it. And then we were like, well, everyone can't cook, so everyone's not going to be able to do that. So let's, you know, put together, you know, 10 or 12 signature fried rice bowls that they could choose from. So right now, our most popular fried rice bowl is called the Peruvian rice. It's four mm -hmm. ounces of chicken breast. And we mm -hmm. do the green aje verde sauce that Peru yep. is known for. So people love that bowl. I mean, that bowl flies out the window. Um, Another bowl I'm excited about, I'm about to put another one on the menu, it's called, it's gonna, we're going to do short rib. I personally love short rib, so we're going to do a short rib fried rice bowl. The wings, we have our sweet and tangy wings, which are very popular. Um, we have another popular wing, is like our, our Chinatown wing. <laughs> so we basically took like the, um, you know that red barbecue sauce you get on the ribs from Chinese food place? We took that red barbecue sauce and we remixed it. Those are popular. Coca-Cola wings are popular. We take Coke and we reduce it and we make a barbecue sauce out of that. That's mm. pretty good. Pineapple habanero is great. Yeah. It's all kind of like what you like. You know, right. Do you like meat? Do you like tangy? Do you like savory? What do you like? Um, and, and, and you can kind of find your spaces within that. Yeah. Jason, uh, we have time for one more question, and we have one from our audience. It's, what advice can you offer males of color looking to tap into markets in which they are the minority? How do people connect? Uh, and also, how do people connect with you further after this? Tap in the markets in which we are the minority. They mean like which we're the minority consumer, or we are the minority like operating in that space. Uh, possibly both. All right. So if we're a minority consumer, you gotta think outside the box and think what people's needs are because it can't be based on what your little neighborhood likes or what you like mm -hmm. personally. 
Um, like everyone asked me, you know, when they told her I was gonna open a restaurant, everyone said, you're gonna do a soul food restaurant? And I was like, why? Because I'm black, I have to do a soul food restaurant. Like, <laughs> it just like everyone thinks like the first person they hear is when they say I have a restaurant, they ask me if it's soul food. So no, like I didn't want to do soul food at first. I, we, we, we brainstormed and thought about what the most, what we thought would be the most successful business. And not only that, what we thought would be the most franchisable. So, you know, we look for a location that like, I want to follow Starbucks. Wherever Starbucks is, I want to be within a couple miles of Starbucks. I want to be next to the universities. I want to, you know, so there's, there's certain, so you, we identified a market and then we built the menu or you built your product or service to that market. And then you make sure you're located in the right spot that people can understand your, what you, your product or service and that they can afford your product and service and that they have a need for your product and service. And then like, in terms of operating in spaces where like you're the minority, I've done that all the time. Like when I was, how many radio execs do you think were, were black? Like when I was, like, I was like the only black radio exec. So like, normally in every space that I operate, I'm the, or one of the few black people, except, I, except obviously the NAACP. But other than that, like every other space where I operate, I'm like one of the few black people that are there. So, I mean, it's America. You just got to get used to it and just kind of adapt and, 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 and figure out what your, your, your spaces where you can win. And you got to, and unfortunately the time, the, the thing that everyone says is true. You got to work harder than everybody. Yeah, that's right. And how can guests in our audience get in touch with you to learn more? Yeah, I mean, they could uh, connect with me on Instagram. Um, my Instagram is jayteal, J-A-Y-T-E-A-L. You can connect me through there. You can shoot me an email. Uh, you can send it to the letter J at changetheplay.org, changetheplay.org. Um, through the website, um, changetheplay.org, or through Bomb Wings and Rice Bar website, which is website's name is two bomb.com that's t-o-o bomb.com so those are all ways you can you can reach out to me facebook i'm jt on facebook as well awesome well thank you to both you and fred for being here today we're so happy to support your foundation so anything you can anything that the university can do please reach out um, to all of our guests thank you for tuning in i hope everybody continues to stay safe and stay well during this really challenging time the weather is nice so please check out twobomb.com like jason said for the rice and wings the menu is incredible and i can personally vouch that the food is amazing so please be well and we'll see you for more events on the virtual pod soon thank you to fred mckinney and jason teal for participating in today's episode this show is produced by quinnipiac graduate student michael bachman and executive produced by David DeRoche, Quinnipiac's Director of Community Programming, and hosted by me, Carla Natale. I'm the Associate Vice President for University Events and Community Partnerships. To learn more about our range of podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can subscribe to any and all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other apps. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at qupodcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us your feedback, questions, and episode ideas at qupodcasts at qu.edu. To learn more about Quinnipiac's virtual events, visit qu.edu slash virtualquad. Thank you for joining us on the quad at the Virtual Quadcast. Mm-hmm.